It's Wednesday, January 3rd, and this could have killed more people than the earthquake. We start here. Just hours after Japan survived a series of quakes, an explosion rocks Tokyo's airport. You see people scampering down those slides, running to safety. We'll take you to the chaotic scene. A top Hamas leader is killed, but not in Gaza. They have said that they are going to uh, retaliate. If this was Israel striking a neighbor, could it prompt a wider war? And Harvard hasn't been this rudderless since the 1600s. She felt like she was facing a, quote, frightening level of personal attacks. Conservatives who wanted the university president out have gotten their wish. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. For many, the first 48 hours of this new year have been joyous, exciting. For people in Japan, they've been bizarre and in some cases deadly. The powerful earthquake in Japan, at least several people killed, tens of thousands without electricity. On New Year's Day, an earthquake rocked the western part of the country. Its epicenter was on the Noto Peninsula in the Sea of Japan. And considering how big this was, in some ways that location was a relief. It's largely a remote area, and the fact that it wasn't further offshore then lowered the chances of a massive tsunami for everyone else. However, that remoteness also made it harder for officials to get into the most devastated areas. And as the death count rose, as rescuers scrambled to get on flights, something else happened. Two planes collided on a Tokyo runway, which almost added hundreds to the death count. Unbelievable scenes unfolding at Tokyo's Haneda Airport, and ABC's Matt Gutman is there right now. Matt, this was like a terrifying fireball almost to punctuate this disaster. How did this all happen? Well, Japan Airlines Flight 516 was coming down into Haneda. This is the busiest time of year here, Brad. Holiday season, They take the entire week off here of the first week of the year in Japan. So lots of flights, lots of people traveling, going to and from family, friends, vacations, whatever. The airports have been busy. But as that flight 516 was coming down and just as it landed, another flight, a Coast Guard cargo plane, was about to enter into that taxiway, into the runway. And it just nosed a few feet in. And that's where this collision happened. It was after flight 516 had already touched down, and that's where you see this massive fireball. And then flight 516, which is an Airbus A350, it's a wide-body plane. It's a big plane capable of carrying over 400 passengers. Basically loses its nose gear, slides on its belly, and fire is billowing out from the sides. It comes to a stop about 1,000 yards after the initial collision, and that's where the real fire starts. At landing, I felt strong shaking, and when I looked at the window, I saw sparks flying and burning. And when the plane stopped, in less than one minute, the cabin was full of smoke. But somehow, in the videos that we've seen and from the eyewitness testimony, you see people scampering down those slides, running to safety, heeding the commands of cabin crew. I was wondering what happened, and then I felt the airplane tilted to the side at the runway and felt a big bump. The flight attendants told us to stay calm and instructed us to get off the plane. And every single person aboard that flight, 379 passengers and crew, made it out alive. 17 people were hurt, according to authorities, but still, that's astonishing. 
And it's important to note, Brad, that um, five of the six people on that Japanese Coast Guard aircraft were killed in that initial fireball. Uh. Um, but every single person on that passenger plane did survive. Right. You, you've seen this kind of compared here to like the miracle on, on the Hudson River, right, where it's, it seems by all accounts that many people almost should have died but based on what everyone saw. And yet they didn't. I mean, what are, are there reasons as to why everyone was so lucky here? A couple of reasons. One, perhaps some quick movement on the part of both pilots had that cargo plane, the Coast Guard cargo plane, nosed even just a few feet, literally three to five feet farther onto the runway. It might have struck the fuselage of Flight 516. And had it done Mm. that, the fireball would have been bigger. The explosion could have been catastrophic. And experts tell us that everybody on board, both of those planes could have been killed. So this is really just a matter of feet here. Also, this is an Airbus A350. Just mentioned that. It's a brand new plane, just two years old, carbon fiber. And these planes are designed to be fireproof, to give passengers and crew those 90 precious seconds to be able to get out of the plane to get down those slides and to scamper to safety. We were just out there on the observation deck where you can see both where the cargo plane was incinerated and where what's left of Flight 516 came to rest. And they're they're gone. Those fl- planes are gone. The fuselages no longer exist. It's just pretty much wings and parts of engines at this point. And it's incredible that they withstood the fire long enough to allow those passengers to scramble to safety. It's so interesting that when we talk about this being a miracle, like, no, it's actually because like the design and the training and the getting people off all worked the way it was supposed to here. Matt, when, when it comes to just what Japan's been dealing with over the last 48 hours, I mean, there was this earthquake. First, it was four dead, then 20 dead, then 40 dead. I mean, wh- where are these fatalities being found? And, and you know, what happens from here? And that number is increasing, Brad. Um, Japanese authorities are still trying to access some of the hardest hit areas. <laughs> A 7.6 quake just a couple of miles deep is enormously powerful. And what happens is liquefaction is called. Basically what happens is the shaking liquefies the ground when it's so close, um, turning it to a kind of quicksand. So Japan has the most stringent earthquake codes possibly in the world. Mm. And what those buildings withstood is incredible. But there were a number of buildings that collapsed and It's believed that there are still people trapped in the rubble, and it's been hard for rescuers to get to some of them in these hardest-hit areas because the roads have been completely severed. (laughs) Japanese authorities say that in the coming hours and days, they will continue to get to the places that need help the most. And, you know, as we know from previous earthquakes of this size, the tremors will continue for weeks. Each day, there will be a little bit less, a little bit fewer of them, but they will continue for weeks and weeks, and some of them may be pretty powerful. So that's another thing that is a challenge for the first responders and rescuers trying to get to the uh, sort of the northernmost part of the Nota Peninsula. Right. It was dozens and dozens of quakes just within those first 24 hours. And now, of course, that's continuing. All right. Matt Gutman there in Tokyo. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, if a country's capital is bombed by its neighbor, that's usually the sign of a war, right? So did Israel just create a new battlefront? We'll take you there after the break. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. We told you yesterday how Israel has claimed it's going to start reducing its footprint in Gaza in the coming weeks. Fewer soldiers on the ground, even though it says it also plans for this war to continue throughout this year. So the real question isn't whether the conflict will go on, it's just what it will look like. Well, then yesterday, a new strike appeared to go far beyond the boundaries of Gaza. So just a review, for years, the Gaza Strip has been run by the terror group Hamas, but not all of Hamas's leaders are based in Gaza. Some have fled to other countries like Qatar and Lebanon, which borders Israel to the north. Yesterday, a huge explosion rocked a neighborhood in Lebanon just outside its capital of Beirut. Hours later, Hamas announced one of its leaders had been killed and they blamed Israel for this strike. Let's go to ABC's foreign correspondent Marcus Moore. He's in Israel right now, but he's been covering the scene in Lebanon for weeks now. Marcus, I mean, what happened here? Well, uh, hey, Brad, I mean, this was uh, this was a major event that happened. Um, Israel apparently uh, targeting a top Hamas official. His name is Salah al-Aruri. This is a man who spent 27 years in, his, in an Israeli jail. Um, he got out, but then uh, lived the rest of his life in exile in Lebanon. Um, but Israel had said that he was a, a target of theirs uh, even before the October 7th attacks uh, that happened um, in Israel. And also it's worth noting that this is a man who had a $5 million bounty for his capture um, from the U.S. Uh, for his role in in past terrorist attacks in, in previous years. So this was a major figure uh, who was taken out. And it will certainly have a huge impact on the Hamas organization. But of course, as you know, these things don't happen um, in a vacuum. Uh, the strike uh, happened in Lebanon, uh, which is also home to a, a political group known as Hezbollah. And Hezbollah is a heavily armed, well-organized uh, group that, um, as I said, operates and is based in Beirut, in a southern suburb known as Dahia. And uh, they have said that they are going to uh, retaliate uh, for this strike uh, in support of Hamas and in support of the Palestinian people um, against this, this Israeli um, war that we've watched unfold um, since October 7th. Uh, so a lot has happened, and this is really, this is a huge deal. Yeah, and, and Israel hasn't really disputed this. They haven't admitted to doing it either. But, I mean, if they, in fact— did this, what would that mean, Marcus? Because let's be clear, this is not like firing a rocket across the border at some militants. Like we've seen that before in some of these disputed territories in the north. Beirut is much farther into Lebanon. It's in the middle of the country. It's its capital. Anywhere else on earth, you fire at a country's capital, that's declared an act of war, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's happened before, but it is a major step. And uh, it is important to keep in mind that there uh, has been and, and, and continues to be um, 
uh, a volley of, of, of fighting between Israel and uh, Lebanon's Hezbollah. Um, but this particular strike, because it's so far into, into Lebanon, it does make it significant. In fact, uh, during my time in, uh, in Lebanon just last year, I uh, spent a month there following this, um, this conflict from that side. Right. And, you know, we were always talking about if, if Israel were to strike farther into, into Lebanon, that would mark a major escalation and it could bring us closer to a, a wider conflict in the region. The, the Lebanese government has responded, Hezbollah has responded, Hamas uh, has responded. So many groups uh, have called this uh, an Israeli crime. And Hezbollah and Hamas have said that they, that they will retaliate. Uh, in fact, long ago, even before this happened, Hassan Nasrallah, who's the, the head of, of Hezbollah, said that if Israel carried out any strike on any of their members or the members of Hamas, uh, that they would respond in an unprecedented way. So, as we sit here today, um, everyone is, is bracing for the response. But I can tell you, um, there is also the reality that it will be uh, potentially a measured response. And I say that because, at least during my time uh, recently in Lebanon, and in my conversations with, uh, with Hamas officials, and uh, also with Hezbollah, there is not a sense that they want a wider war. They don't want to escalate the situation, in particularly in, in, in Beirut, um, a city that is, is still recovering from the explosion, if you'll recall, uh, several years ago. A war would have just an absolutely uh, horrific effect uh, on the people there. And so I, I say that to say and that it, based on my conversations and the sense that I get is nobody wants a wider war. Yeah, and a lot of people have theorized Hamas did want a wider war to sort of make the Arab world take sides, either with the Palestinians or not. But like you said, good luck selling that in these large capitals. Uh, Marcus Moore in Israel right now. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. Now, even before this latest development, there have been lots of pro-Palestinian protests here in the U.S. On New Year's Day, demonstrators briefly shut down the Rose Parade in California, but perhaps the most contentious back and forth have been happening on college campuses. And yesterday, the leader of Harvard became the latest university president to resign over the response. A lot of pressure has been coming straight from Washington, D.C. So let's go to ABC's White House correspondent, Mary Alice Parks, who's been tracking this. Mary Alice, we thought Claudine Gay had been one of the people to survive this whole controversy, right? What what happened? Yeah, but now the Harvard University president is out. And in in really dramatic fashion. I mean, this is the shortest tenure of a president of Harvard since the 1600s, according to the Harvard Crimson, at least. She was the first black woman in that role. And you're right that really since October 7th, since the immediate fallout of the Hamas attack on Israel, she was in the limelight facing intense scrutiny for how she was handling what was going on on her campus. Israel has ordered over a million Palestinians to flee their homes or be killed. 
This is not self-defense. And right after the attack, we saw a student groups, several student groups there on Harvard, put out a letter that was hugely controversial, sort of blaming Israel for the violence, not condemning Hamas in the attack. Jews are aching. Um, I know Jewish students feel unsafe and they feel uncomfortable and they feel betrayed. We saw her really struggle, I think, in those first early days to figure out how to get a grasp and a hold on what was happening on her campus. At least that's how it was perceived by, I think, a lot of really powerful alums and a lot of, frankly, powerful alums that happen to be members of Congress. And, and it snowballed from there. I have sought to confront hate while preserving free expression. This is difficult work. And I know that I have not always gotten it right. That congressional hearing. I mean, we all saw it, Brad. At MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment? Yes or no? They've targeted at individuals, not making public statements. We saw the Republican Elise Stefanik, a member of Republican leadership, of course, really grill those Ivy League presidents. At Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. We heard these, these Ivy League presidents um, give very lawyerly answers. They seemed, frankly, not very empathetic. It was almost like they couldn't take a step back and, and see how this moment was going to, this very simple moment was going to look and play. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. It was really, really tough, and I think that they've, a lot of them have struggled to recover from that high-profile moment. And, you know, in the aftermath, we saw that uh, University of Pennsylvania's president, Liz McGill, she stepped down. And the scrutiny there at Harvard only continued. Yeah. And so then why now, though, I guess, Mary Alice, if this was a month ago, these congressional hearings, Harvard rallied around its president while Penn's people all resigned. Why is Claudine Gay now stepping down? In the last few weeks, all of a sudden, there were accusations of uh, plagiarism, accusations of, of academic sloppiness in her early work, in her doctoral thesis um, from decades ago. But so many accusations that Harvard had to look into it. And I think just a growing drumbeat about her record. And, you know, we saw her put out this statement that basically she said that the that it was in the best interest of Harvard for her to resign. She wrote, so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than any individual like herself. But it was interesting. She also wrote in this sort of lengthy statement about why now that she felt like she was facing a, quote, frightening level of personal attacks uh, that she said were because of her race. Mm. She's not wrong in that there was all of a sudden incredible, intense criticism, calls for her to reside. You know, I think that Harvard and her as an extension or, or the public face of Harvard um, became such a focus of criticism that I think that she felt like it was um, now becoming a distraction for her to stay. Yeah, it was interesting. Harvard said they did an investigation on the alleged plagiarism and that it did find instances of, quote, duplicative language without appropriate attribution, end quote, but no research misconduct, they said. 
But Mary Alice, I guess I'm wondering what happens next to just the broader American university system, because it doesn't seem to me like the next president of Harvard will suddenly say, yeah, you will get expelled if you say these controversial chants like from the river to the sea. Like, mm. There are real debates as to whether that's a call to genocide or whether it could be seen as like a violent threat against someone on campus. It also doesn't seem like the next president would start releasing the names of members of student groups to prominent Harvard alumni like they were asking for. So what 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 is a university president to do now? We saw such extreme behavior on both sides, right? In the immediate aftermath of that student letter, we saw trucks driving around Harvard trying to out name and the names and faces of students who had signed on to it. If they're ashamed of what they did and want to apologize, we'll remove them. If they're proud of what they did, they should thank us. And people of of lots of faiths and lots of ethnic and racial backgrounds who all felt unsafe and frustrated and scared. Took out the flag of Israel, got yelled at, insulted in English and Arabic, got told that I was a murderer. I think that if I show my face or say something against Israel is at this time, I just, the attacks are just, will be overwhelming. We're not going to see Republicans on Capitol Hill let up, though. You know, I'm looking at these statements that have come out in the last few hours right after her resignation. Mm. The chair of the Education Committee, Virginia Fox, put out a statement calling her resignation welcome news, saying that her academically dishonest behavior was appalling and saying that the committee will continue very rigorous oversight of of Harvard, of other universities. Uh, Congresswoman Stefanik put out a statement saying that her quote, morally bankrupt answers to her questions that day, like we were talking about on Capitol Hill, uh, sort of made history, were absolutely pathetic. I mean, really just hammering home and celebrating her resignation. I don't see Republicans letting up. I think you're exactly right, that part of what we're seeing now is just a tough moment in academia, but where people are trying to figure out what, what speech counts as hate speech and who decides. Those are topics that are often debated on college campuses. And I think that those debates aren't going away. And and if anything, to your point, how you started talking about the protests we've seen recently, the reality is there are a lot of young people in this country who have been much more willing to be critical of Israel, who personally feel in line with Palestinian cause. We've seen that. And I think that these campuses are trying to come to terms with what that looks like in a safe and productive way and when it crosses a line. Right. And it really gets to the crux of, of, you know, what a college campus is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where you can freely throw out an idea, not knowing if it's right, not knowing if it's offensive, you know, and and see what that means. And does that conflict with the other responsibility of these colleges, which is to keep, you know, students feeling safe as they embark on these journeys? So uh, Mary Alice Parks in Washington covering all this. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, he's brought in billions of dollars for his creator, but now he's free. Hope you're all ears. One last thing is next. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? 
Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. We've talked a little about new laws that took effect January 1st, but most of them aren't getting movies made about them. That's because for the first time this week, anyone can make money off of Mickey Mouse. What you're hearing is the first time Mickey appeared in public as the character named Steamboat Willie. This animated film premiered in 1928. Well, copyright laws usually last at longest 95 years, which is why on January 1st of 2024, the film and the character entered the public domain. If you're an artist, can you say hot dog? Now, this only applies to the first iteration of Mickey, Mickey 1.0. Mickey in Color from 1935, still copyrighted. Wizard Mickey from Fantasia 1940, still copyrighted. And the chubby cheek character you see today with Minnie and the whole gang. This sure is a great way to see the city, isn't it, Mickey? It sure is, and I'm going to make sure you get to see the whole thing. Well, that is all still owned by Disney, who, I should mention, is the parent company of ABC. I've got a lot of mice in my life. But what's interesting here was how immediately Mickey artwork sprouted up. A cartoonist used Mickey and Minnie to star in a recreation of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which also became the stuff of public domain this week. People began floating their t-shirt designs, there's a preview for a Mickey-inspired video game, and filmmakers revealed the trailer for their new slasher movie starring, you guessed it, Steamboat Willie himself. Gina, turn around, please, Gina! It's as if you could tell they've been waiting for January 1st for months. But here's where things could get tricky. The character Mickey doesn't just fall under copyright law, he's also trademarked. He represents the Disney Corporation, meaning if you create a movie that looks like it might have been produced by Disney, you can't quite tell, they could still sue you. Disney issued a statement saying, we will of course continue to protect our rights for the more modern versions of Mickey Mouse, and we will work to safeguard against consumer confusion caused by unauthorized uses of Mickey. The production company behind the scary movie took no chances using a big title card that read, this film is not made or endorsed by Disney in any way. They've got some practice in this arena. They made a Winnie the Pooh slasher flick last year, meaning 94 years from now, perhaps someone will be using clips of their film. I feel like this is about to become more common, right? Because you used to have, there was pieces of art and there were centuries old mega companies. Well now, like they're all coming together a hundred years later. We'll see if the gloves come off there. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.